Guy Burgess. Charismatic, witty, charming, infuriating. Guy Burgess's life could have been one long party. But he wasn't satisfied with the status quo. And neither was the Soviet Union. They saw Guy Burgess as a valuable, charismatic asset to be a spy. I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast, The Story Is, the podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the personal. This is a continuation of our series, Why Spy? This episode is entitled, Guy Burgess. In this episode, about Guy Burgess, one of the members of the Cambridge Five spy ring, I do want to inform you about how he was a spy, but I also want to tell you what he was like as a person, because those two things are inescapable and hand-in-glove why Guy Burgess was a spy. In this interesting article I found on smithsonianmag.com, it talks about his friend Stanley Weiss, who first met him drinking on the lounge in the RMS Coronian in the summer of 1950. Weiss was returning to America after several years in Europe. Burgess was moving there as a British diplomat. Over the course of the journey, and in the months that followed, the men became friends. Weiss was astounded by Burgess's skills as a conversationalist, his easy charisma and his connections to the most important people. The only thing Burgess didn't share with him was that he was a spy for the Soviet Union. Burgess had impeccable and impressive social pedigree, it says. He owned a book signed by Winston Churchill. He was even friends with Churchill's niece, Clarice. He knew writers like W.H. Auden and E.M. Forrester, the economist John Maynard Keynes, and officials from MI5 and MI6, the British intelligence. Burgess talked to his new American friend about Beethoven, about the American obsession with annual holidays. And according to this article, he inspired Weiss to enroll in Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and became his most glamorous friend. Burgess told Weiss all about his job and the official duties of the second secretary of the UK embassy. He made it seem very glamorous, endless parties and glamorous dignitaries, Weiss said in an email. But Burgess left out any talk of communism or the Soviet Union, and Weiss never suspected Burgess was a spy. Guy Burgess was born into a wealthy middle-class family. He attended the Wright Colleges, Eton, the Royal Naval College, Dartmouth, Trinity, Cambridge. And among the intellectuals of Cambridge, there was quite a bit of this belief and this reliance, this uh, intellectual curiosity and acceptance of Marxism. Maurice Dobb, a communist and Marxist economist, and also a member of the Apostles, which was a group described as a home of the intellectual elite of the arts and sciences. Maurice Dobb introduced Guy Burgess to Kim Philby. This introduction is the big part of the Cambridge Five network for the Soviet agents. How many people Burgess recruited or attempted to recruit is not known, but the Soviet intelligence valued him for his ability to meet useful people. Useful people like 
Anthony Blunt, who would also become a Cambridge spy. Blunt then expanded the recruiting outside of Cambridge. Blunt also recruited another Cambridge spy, John Cross, who conveniently already worked for the British Foreign Office. And they all, of course, reported to their Soviet controller, who reported to the Soviet intelligence. Now, Burgess worked for the BBC as a reporter in order to springboard into more spying opportunities. Burgess began supplying information from his posts as a reporter for the BBC from 1936 to 38. Then he became a member of the MI6 intelligence agency in 38. But it's a weird jump, isn't it, from reporter to intelligence agent? How did this happen? Like the rest of the Cambridge spies, he had the right background, went to the right schools, plus he had that guy Burgess charm. Burgess was appointed to the Section D of MI6. His job was to send pro-British and anti-Nazi broadcasts to Europe. But his real purpose was to set up Kim Philby's entry into MI6. The Guy Burgess charm brings the most infamous spy of the Cambridge Five into the British Intelligence Agency. Along with the Guy Burgess charm comes the Guy Burgess drinking. In 1940, Burgess was charged for driving a war office car while drunk, but the charge was dismissed, as he was carrying out confidential duties and working long hours. Now, Guy Burgess was effective as a double agent. According to a once-secret archive smuggled out of the Soviet Union by a defector, Burgess alone handed over 389 secret documents to the KGB in the first half of 1945 and another 168 documents over the next four years. In December of 46, Burgess became the, the private secretary to Hector McNeil, then Minister of State of the Foreign Office. According to his biographer, Sheila Kerr, Burgess excitedly told his Soviet controller about his rapid and sensational advance to the center of British foreign and defense policymaking. Regarded as an expert on communism and with experience in propaganda, he was appointed to the Information Research Department, a secret unit created to combat Soviet propaganda. Yes, Burgess was effective and dangerous. And the only thing that stopped Guy Burgess was Guy Burgess, specifically his drinking. According to the SmithsonianMag.com article that I read, he was regularly drunk and openly homosexual, and at the time, that was a crime. Burgess appears to be a complete alcoholic, and I do not think that even in Gibraltar I have seen anyone put away so much hard liquor in such a short period of time, said one MI5 representative in 1949. Burgess once dropped a pile of documents stolen from the foreign office when he was drunk, and even told Stanley Weiss, his friend, that his co-worker, Philby, was a spy. Though Weiss didn't recognize it as a revelation at the time, though Weiss didn't recognize it as a revelation at the time, he writes in his memoir, Being Dead is Bad for Business. Burgess had his flaws, and those flaws, plus the discovery 
of one of his fellow Cambridge spies would start the slow destruction of the Cambridge spy ring. So before we go any further, I have to tell you about the Venona Project. Now at this point, at the Cold War, both sides were pretty suspicious of their own intelligence offices. The U.S. was looking in on itself, and the Soviet Union was doing the same. In 1943, the, the U.S. Army's intelligence agents service began Venona, a secret program to examine and decode encrypted Soviet communications. In 1949, an FBI cryptanalyst discovered that a member of the British Embassy was spying for the KGB. Meredith Gardner and his code-breaking team at Arlington Hall discovered that a Soviet spy with the code name of Homer was found on a number of messages from the KGB station at the Soviet Consulate General in New York City to Moscow Center. The cryptanalysts discovered that the spy had been in Washington since 1944. The FBI concluded that it could be one of 6,000 people. At first, they concentrated their efforts on non-diplomatic employees of the embassy. In April of 1951, the Venona decoders found a clue in one of the messages. Homer had regular contacts with his Soviet control in New York, using his pregnant wife as an excuse. This information enabled them to identify the spy as Cambridge spy Donald Macklin, this first secretary at the Washington Embassy during World War II. Donald Macklin was placed under MI5 surveillance in 1951. Now, Kim Philby, his fellow spy, was not only the MI6 Soviet watch office. He was also the liaison to the FBI and the CIA, and he learned of the discovery of Macklin and Burgess, and that it was likely that they would be discovered soon. Now, MI5 doesn't arrest Macklin immediately, because the Venona project was confidential, so those involved didn't want it to be revealed in court. It was decided to keep Macklin under surveillance in the hopes that he would lead them to his Soviet controller or reveal more double agents. Philby informed Moscow of the situation and demanded that Macklin be extracted from the UK before he could be questioned and possibly give away all the spies embedded in Britain. Philby maintained his distance from Macklin by having Guy Burgess warn Macklin that he must go to Moscow. The two men dined in a Chinese restaurant in downtown Washington, selected because it had individual booths with piped music to keep anyone else from listening in. Burgess said he would return to London in order to receive details of the escape plan before he left. Philby made Burgess promise he would not flee with Macklin to Moscow. Do not go with him when he goes. If you do, that will be the end of me. Swear that you won't. Philby was aware that if Burgess went with Macklin, he would be suspected as a member of the Soviet spy network. Despite Philby's pleadings, Burgess goes with Macklin to Moscow. Stanley Weiss would learn the truth about Guy Burgess from a newspaper. 
I was absolutely shocked to see my friend Guy Burgess on the front page, Weiss recalled. Again, this is from the Smithsonian Mag magazine. I learned later that Guy had abandoned his vintage Lincoln Continental at a local Washington garage and left his prized book autographed by Winston Churchill at a friend's place in New York. The two spies fled to Moscow in May of 1951, confirming all suspicions held against them and causing outrage in the United States. Despite his work for the USSR, the spies were never fully trusted by their handlers, and Burgess seems to have become unhappy in Moscow. Defection itself wasn't a crime under English law. But you're wondering, why does Burgess go with Macklin to Moscow? Well, that would be Anthony Blunt, the very person Burgess persuaded to side with the Soviet Russia, told Guy to go. Anthony Blunt warned Burgess that a trial would have disastrous results for the entire spy circle. Yuri Moden, the Soviet contact for the Cambridge spies, also insisted that Burgess must accompany Macklin. He later explained, The center had concluded that we had not one, but two, burnt-out agents on our hands. Burgess had lost most of his former value to us. Even if he retained his job, he could never again feed intelligence to the KGB, as he had done before. He was finished. So even by Russian standards, Guy Burgess drank too much and was no longer useful to the KGB. Macklin was not only near arrest, but also mania. Anthony Blunt had told Moden, There's a serious trouble. Guy Burgess has just arrived in London. Homer, codename for Donald Macklin, is about to be arrested. It's only a question of days now, maybe hours. Donald's now in such a state that I'm convinced he will break down the moment they arrest him. Donald Macklin was burned as an agent and burnt out mentally. On May 25, 1951, Burgess appeared in Macklin's home in Tatsfield with a rented car, packed bags, and two round-trip tickets booked in false names for fillets and a, a pleasure boat leaving that night for St. Malo in France. Macklin and Burgess took a train to Paris and then took another train to Brunei in, in Switzerland. They then picked up fake passports in false names for the Soviet embassy. They then took another train to Zurich where they boarded a plane bound for Stockholm with a stopover in Prague. They left the airport and now safely behind the Iron Curtain, they were taken by car to Moscow. In Russia, Burgess worked in the foreign language publishing house. Isolated in Moscow, where homosexuality was not officially tolerated, he turned to drink. Burgess, it's described, seemed trapped. He continued carousing in Russia and was visited periodically by British reporters. One British reporter, Edward Crankshaw, who disliked the spy's duplicity, but later admitted, I liked him much and finished up being deeply sorry for him. The man is half dotty, not actively vicious. The whole situation is the sort of personal tragedy that can only be ended by death. And Guy Burgess did die in Moscow from a heart attack in a hospital in August of 19, 
63. Guy Burgess, a man of great personality and talent, dying miserably in a hospital in Moscow, far away from his car, from his book autographed by Winston Churchill, from his parties and his friends. This is where his spying led him. It probably left many of his friends wondering, why did he spy? Here we are to answer the big question of the episode. Why did Guy Burgess spy? Well, this one took a lot of thought, and combining the events with my own opinion and intuition and feeling. I believe Guy Burgess spied to change his status quo. Burgess was a believer in socialism to change things. He made the case so effectively he convinced Anthony Blunt to spy against his own country. Consider Burgess was not only a socialist, but also a homosexual, which was illegal in Britain for many years. He could be arrested for being gay. Why not work to reshape the world you are in? If capitalism and democracy and the religion of the West were not friendly to him as a person, tear it down and build a just socialist world. A world friendly to all. But to just label Burgess a socialist sells him short. Would you like to know how Guy Burgess got that autographed book from Winston Churchill? Well, there's a legend of Guy Burgess as a reporter meeting Winston Churchill before Churchill was prime minister. Churchill was an outsider statesman and disagreed with the appeasement towards Hitler by the British government. I found this from the WinstonChurchill.org. This is their accounts of the Churchill-Guy Burgess meeting. It says, There were two fascinating aspects to the Churchill-Burgess meeting. The first was that it was the day after Neville Chamberlain had signed the Munich Agreement and his subsequent promise to adoring crowds in Downing Street that he had brought peace for our time. For Churchill, a man who had been pursued by black dogs after the Dardanelles and after other dark days in his life, that October 1st must have been one of the darkest. The second extraordinary fact is that Guy Burgess, in addition to his duties at the BBC, was even at this stage one of the most notorious Soviet spies. It, it ponders, such a man with Churchill? It seemed an unnatural combination. So what were they doing? The website continues, Dryberg left a detailed account that made sense. Both Churchill and Burgess enjoyed drink and disp disputation, and they were both highly opinionated. Crucially, they were both committed to the fight against fascism, and it is inconceivable to me that he didn't debate the future course of events with passion. Churchill would have been pessimistic, Burgess youthfully bullish. Whereas Sir Martin Gilbert's research is impeccable. Any account by Dryberg, this website says, has to be treated with caution. He was himself a KGB spy. And almost none of the histories other than Gilbert's offers even a glancing reference to the meeting. Yet Dryberg's book was published in 1956 
and Churchill could have easily have dismissed it as nonsense. He did not. Burgess worked at the heart of Westminster, the website says. Even everyone through knew he knew everyone through outrageous alcohol-fueled parties that were attended by politicians, priests, and even some prostitutes. Yet, when his treachery was discovered, it was difficult to find anyone who had ever shared a bus line with him. Many matters were covered up. Files and diaries were filleted, it says. Burgess cast into oblivion and exile in Moscow. Now, in my research, I found Guy Burgess was even portrayed by Benedict Cumberbatch in a play about the meeting of with Churchill and Guy Burgess. In it, Burgess comes off as an impassioned fighter for fasci- uh, fighter against fascism, inspiring Churchill to use his eloquence to rally England against Nazi Germany. Now, Guy Burgess's own account of the meeting follows that same train of thought, uh, and you can find it on YouTube. Though his Telling of this account includes a grumbly Winston Churchill impersonation. In it, Burgess says that Churchill was sent a letter asking him what he should do for his lost country, uh, meaning dealing with the question of the looming Nazi fascism. Churchill asks Burgess, how can I help? What can I do as a statesman out of power and out of influence? Burgess says, Give him your eloquence. Speak out against appeasement in Hitler. If Churchill doesn't make the case for fighting Nazi Germany to his own government, the course of world history is tremendously altered for the worse. Some of the spies of the Cambridge Five may profess they were fighting fascism. If Burgess did encourage Churchill, I have to say he did actually help the cause to push against the Third Reich, while also being a traitor against Britain. For contrast, consider Kim Philby. When Philby fled to Moscow, he eventually wrote a book about how he spied to the Soviet Union. Guy Burgess, when he was interviewed by the Canadian Broadcasting Company, he refused to admit he was a spy for Russia and expresses a desire to return to England. Even in infamy, Guy Burgess, again, fighting against the status quo. All right, everyone, before we, I tell you what happens in the next episode, I do have to give you my updated sources. My sources for this series are SpartacusEducational.com, BBCNews.com, TheGuardian.com, The book, The Cuckoo's Nest, 500 Years of Cambridge Spies, by Christopher Catherwood. SmithsonianMag.com TheJerusalemPost.com NewsStatesman.com The article, The Silver Spoon Spy, How Cambridge Double Agent Donald Macklin Got Away With It For So Long, by William Boyd. The Cambridge Five, The History of the Notorious Spy Ring During World War II, by Charles Rivers Editors. Britannica.com WinstonChurchill.org and the documentary Tracking Edith. Those are my sources. Thank you very much for listening. 
I do hope you will leave a nice iTunes review or wherever it is you listen to podcasts and recommend the story is to any of your friends who do like podcasts. As well as if you have any thoughts, opinions, please send them to the storyispodcast at gmail.com. Now next time, Donald Macklin. Who was he? Why did he spy? Why did he mentally break down? Those questions will be answered next time. Until then, I'm Sam Logan, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.